0: hello and welcome back to equity a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines I'm Natasha Mascarenas, and welcome to the new year. Joining me is senior TechCrunch reporter on FinTech, PropTech, LaM, and a million other
1: things, Marianne Azevedo. Marianne, how are you? I missed you. I know. I missed you too. I'm actually great. I'm I'm excited for the new year. I'm optimistic it's going to be better than last year was.
0: I know. I love that we're, we were both talking yesterday about how we're going to be just more optimistic this year. <laughs> and hopefully, we don't regret entering this year on such a positive note.
1: I doubt that we right. will. I'm <laughs> uh, trying to have that positive. positive. Positive mindset.
0: We are also bringing back a friendly voice on the show. We have stolen her from another show. You might know her from Found. Becca Skutak. welcome back to Equity. Oh, thanks for having me. So you are fully part of the TechCrunch podcast universe. But for people who have heard you sometimes on Equity, just to remind you guys, Becca's going to be stepping in while Alex is out on paternity leave, sending hugs to Alex and a big welcome to you, Becca. This will be fun. And it's kind of fun to have all women on the show too. Someone was just telling me that they want like an all-in, but with women. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to say we're going to become that. But I'm also very happy
2: that, you know, we can if we wanted to. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) We're so happy you're here, Rebecca. Oh, thank you. I'm happy to be here, too, and also share in some of the optimism that hopefully this year will be better than last. Seriously. Well,
0: I mean, let's start with optimism because we're going to talk about CES, which is kind of a conference dedicated to the coolest and high-flying literally gadgets that are out there. Then we're going to jump into deals of the week with Dorsted and USV's new climate fund. Then we're going to get into two themes. We're going to start with SBF, FTX, BS, and then we're going to end with labor layoffs and some changes in the executive suite. So lots of themes that you may have been used to in 2022, but let's see what the new year is bringing us. Let's start with CES. Have any of us been to the show before? I've never been in person to Las Vegas or on the floor. I'm getting some head shakes. No. No, No, I've never been. (laughs) I I can't imagine thriving in that scenario, but I am very thankful for (laughs) amazing coworkers who are there. Um, And I wanted to start with one of the pieces of technology that really Stood out to me. It's kind of this robot pillow. So it's called the Fufuli, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. I hope I am. And it's basically something you hug and then it matches your breath and helps you either kind of calm down, relax, even fall asleep. And I loved it because, unlike a lot of robotic esque, robotic adjacent products, I could think of a million use cases the moment I saw it. You could use it when you sleep, when you meditate or pray, while you're on the plane, while you're anxious. I mean, I feel like. It's such a perfect invention for someone who's looking to dissociate. So I was like very into it. I'm curious what you guys think, though, too, if you guys would use something like this or if like a good old pillow without <laughs> the the vibration and the, the rhythm of it would do the job.
1: I mean, I would totally try it out. I think it's fascinating, like in terms of matching like the rhythm of the person's breathing and all of that, you know, technology wise is fascinating, even if I don't completely understand how it works. But yeah. I feel like a lot of people would want to try to use this there's a lot of people out there who feel like they might need help with falling asleep with just feeling anxious trying to relax so it, it seems like it would have a lot of different use cases and and that a lot of people would you know maybe want to try it out i mean with, with the weighted blanket was exactly. a exactly hit for a while right so like this is something that it's not certainly not the same thing but i feel like it's in a similar category also like any technology
2: that's gonna help people feel less anxious i'm here for it right like whatever you need like if that's <laughs> (laughs) going to work for you. Like, that's awesome.
0: Yeah. It's like not controversial in that sense at all. So you're spot on. I think it's going to be above $100, which is a, it's a, it's a high price point, but at the same time, Marianne, yeah, weighted blankets are around that much. So I think people and consumers are used to spending something like that for a luxury comfort item.
1: Right. Did
0: anything catch your eye, Marianne? at CES?
1: Yeah, actually, I was intrigued by Bosch's security dash cam that's like it's designed for ride hailing drivers. And I I thought this was interesting, not because I don't think webcams and ride hailing drivers cars is anything necessarily new but what their what their technology they claim will be able to do is come with a wireless or have a wireless SOS button in the vehicle so if the driver feels like they're in a in a situation where they need immediate help they can press this SOS button to activate an emergency call to a Bosch call center then they'll have call operators that are available like 24 hours a day that can access the camera view From that device to determine if emergency services need to be contacted. So it won't automatically call like 911, but it will give access to some, an operator who can see what's happening and then determine if 911 is needed. Yeah. So I mean, I think it's not, it's not quite yet ready. Okay. You know, one thing that, Bothered me a teeny bit, as it said that all rides are monitored. So I, I did have some questions about privacy there, like if you know, if I get into a vehicle not knowing that like it's being monitored by this Bosch. Camera, like I wonder if there's any way, like they're gonna put a little sticker in the car or what, you know. Overall, when I think about safety for these drivers, because I know a lot of them, I've I've read horror stories, right, about people being attacked or robbed, sure, or, and things like that, or say someone, God forbid, is having a heart attack in the back seat. So, like, I could see where something like this could be useful.
0: Totally. I mean, I, it's funny. Like, my choice was like a pillow, and yours is like truly <laughs> changing lives. So love that. Love um, and this has this has Kirsten all over it because I was thinking, like, as I was reading the piece, she wrote it how it very much would work with like robo taxis and maybe it would yeah. answer some of the questions you had around comfort. Cause I do think when you enter a robo taxi, you're not, I mean, I'm expecting to be recorded for like my breathing patterns to be picked up on my lunch. Like I'm expecting no privacy. <laughs> so I very much feel like this, a security dash cam seems like a minimum viable if they want something like a robo taxi to be trusted.
1: Yeah, that's, I can't get my brain still not there yet. Like I, I would never get in a robo taxi. So like I haven't, you know, I can't even think about that. But yeah, that's true. That's one of the applications they're talking about for sure.
0: Becca, I I know you kind of were also captured by something that, again, was making a bigger difference than my pillow uh, for (laughs) CES this week. I'm regretting my choice.
2: (laughs) Something that stood out to me was Samsung is looking to make a new washing machine that helps capture microplastics off of your clothes while it washes them. And something I thought was interesting is one, although I read A lot about microplastics and how they're like messing up every aspect of my life apparently and the environment. I didn't actually know that that's how most of them got into the water was by coming through the wastewater from your washing machine. I had no clue. I did not know that. And so this I think is really interesting because I know just from talking with investors who invest in sustainable consumer products and also just from life in general, people aren't going to buy products if it makes them drastically change how they're doing something. So this feels like the perfect solution to help people do something a little greener, like make a greener choice, help sort of reduce one of those environmental strains. But they literally, it would be no different from just washing your clothes regularly. Yeah. So I think those kind of products actually feel like they can make movements in Mm -hmm. those areas because Mm -hmm. people don't have to fully change what they're doing to adopt them, which is, I think, I mean, largely what keeps people from doing some of the options that are already out there now.
1: You're so right, Becca. I do think that, you know, unfortunately, a lot of us are lazy, right? And we want to do the right thing. So like, if we have the option to do the right thing without having to really do anything extra or different, then it becomes, you know, really appealing. What about the price point though? Like, how does it compare to other washers out there? Oh, I don't know if it mentioned that actually. Yeah. Maybe too early. I don't know how far along this is. Yeah. It's- Probably too early. I'd be curious to see, though, like how much more it would be compared to, you know, some of the other mainstream washers right now, because I'm sure that would also be a factor absolutely
0: yeah well it's also like it's a more unique way to level up like some of these household items than like using less water and I've actually kind of been thinking about this a little bit as I I'm home for the holidays and my parents are like the like top tier of recyclers like they will not let anything not be recycled but I was like having this conversation in my head kind of with them because I knew they wouldn't take it well that like recycling doesn't make as much of a difference as we think it does because a lot of you know a lot of things end up either not being recyclable that we try to recycle or anyways long 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 tangent just to say that I'm looking for things that are more subtle, but as effective in trying to help like a normal consumer try and up their uh, sustainability
1: claims. Yeah, that's so true. That's really true. Because yeah, this way it's like actually sort of proven, I guess. Yeah, it will work. Yeah.
0: I want to actually like if I can change around our deals of the week just a tad and stay on the climate theme because in our deals of the week this week we are talking about how USV is investing through its 200 million climate fund and I kind of liked that they admitted that the firm saw a large demand from LPs for its climate focus to move away from being risky which it matches CES in a weird way because I think a lot of people are still looking for like the moonshots in certain categories or even like hype categories such as climate, but looking for like a a less risky way to bet on that, something that isn't gonna cause you to change everything that you care about. And so in the story that Tim Deschamps wrote for our team, he mentioned how the fund is gonna be paying closer attention to startups addressing adaptation, Basically preparing parts of the economy and society for impacts of climate change instead of just kind of mitigation. So it it was a little bit like earlier, I think, in the lifetime of how a product deals with climate. But it kind of impressed me that they were saying, that, hey, our risk profile is changing, um, even in something around climate. Becca, I know you heard a lot about climate too when you were talking to investors.
2: Mm -hmm. And something else I just wanted to add there before diving to the investor side is a VC I spoke to earlier this year, Bill Clerico, who runs Convective VC, which is a fund focused on wildfire tech. He took a similar stance here where he's like, sure, some of this does fall into the climate change prevention sort of category, but he was all about like the adaptation and the response. So it is interesting that it's now like, it seems like there are more funds kind of focusing on that, yeah, which definitely is probably less risky, which brings me to this survey. I talked to over 35 investors for this investor survey at the end of December. And one of the questions I asked was, what is the next big bubble, right? And a couple of people said climate, which I was surprised by because of how burned everyone got back in 2011, the climate Mm -hmm. bubble and burst. And one of the people who said it was a climate investor. And she said, we're not investing. Well, there are investing, of course, but there she was like, there are so many areas we would never invest in that are getting a ton of money. And she's like, and they are not going to fare better than they did 10 years ago, which I thought was super interesting, because I that's the first time I had heard someone being Less gung ho, but right. hearing that USV can totally acknowledge that there are definitely areas worth investing in in that category, yeah. and areas that are not worth investing in that category, definitely kind of brings that home.
1: Yeah, I actually, I think it's it's great that there, you know, that there are investors acknowledging that and publicly too, because I feel like we lack some of that in fintech, and <laughs> yeah, um, that's why we've seen like this. I don't want to say the bubble is burst in fintech, but you know, it's it's certainly been popped to some extent. Totally. And so I feel like this certain kind of healthy skepticism or just realism in in the space is is important. And I think that's that's not a bad thing. And it's not a surprise that LPs and GPs are looking for things that are not so risky. I mean, especially considering the year that we had last year, that this feels like that's an overall theme in investing generally, but specifically in climate. So I'm actually this is positive news to me, because then maybe like maybe the the things that are really, truly going to have an impact will get more focus and attention as they should.
0: Let's stay on the theme of risk and Marianne, because your deal (laughs) of the week is is something that I was like, I have so many questions about this thing. It seems hard to do, but clearly is raising lots of money. You wrote about Dorstad this week. So tell us what it's all about.
1: Yeah. Good transition, by the way. Um, Yeah. So (laughs) Dorstad is is a startup that has raised $21 in Series B funding. And that's not so bad, really, in this environment. But no. <laughs> um, well, I thought it was interesting for a few reasons. So what they do is, OK, they they work with single family home or condo or townhome uh, landlords, more of the, like the mom and pops, not institutional landlords, right? Okay. Like people like me who who might have a rental property, for example. I don't, but say I did. OK. And um, it's hard sometimes securing tenants and having to deal with property management. So they're like, OK we can do that for you. But not only can we do that for you, we can guarantee a certain amount of rent. Okay, well, I'll be honest, when I first heard this, I was like, what are you? Are you crazy? Like, how can you guarantee a certain amount in rent? Like, what happens if you don't get what you promised that you could get? Yeah. And so then they kind of freaked me out even more when they said that they will pay out of pocket to make up the difference if they cannot get what they said that they could get. So I was like, oh my God, how are you still even operating? And they're like, well, well, well. So they say that they have this machine learning model, this prediction model that they claim is so awesome that they can better predict how much rent to ask and how much can a certain property can command and that sort of thing. So that that it's not very often that they're in that situation where they have to cough up the difference. So they claim that they're growing a lot. They're expanding into new markets right now. They're in only three states, California, Washington, and Massachusetts. They recently expanded into Massachusetts, though, by acquiring the assets of another prop tech that shut down at the end of the year.
0: Which is super smart. Like, I feel like I'm definitely expecting to hear more of this. And fingers crossed we hear more of it because I'm sure it happens, but rare that we see it kind of coupled up with a funding round and someone talking about it out loud. But what was the, the real estate company that they acquired? Was it in a similar space exactly or...
1: Yeah, so it was a, a company called Knox Financial actually based in Boston and they didn't acquire all of its assets but they did acquire like their Boston portfolio so that they took incorporated it into their own platform. So so yeah, I thought it was interesting. While it's sad news that Knox didn't work out, it is a venture-backed company. It looks like they didn't die completely. They're mm-hmm. selling off different parts of their business, at least in this case to doorstead. So, so I also feel like this is an example of something we're going to see a lot more of this year, more M&A activity, whether it be Startups acquiring other startups, or just acquiring assets, or aqua hires—you know, of people, or just companies acquiring startups. Like I feel like already in 2023, I almost said 2022. <laughs> I feel like already in 2023, I'm getting a lot of pitches related to M and A activity. So I, I feel like. Uh, this is something we're going to be seeing a lot more of this year.
2: I just think, too, especially with the way the market's going, it's so smart to expand this way to sort of acquire a company that's already has, like you said, a portfolio already has people using it yeah. as opposed to trying to build out into a new market. So I think especially as if people are looking for acquisition targets this year or people are looking to offer themselves up as being willing to sell, I think we'll see a lot more deals of that nature of people using it as a way to sort of expand into new places too.
0: I think the only like question I have around Doorstead is, you know, is it different enough from other property management services? Like I think about Zeus, which is like that turnkey service that lets people rent and also helps landlords get properties. But I'm curious, Miriam, when you spoke to them, if this felt like the 1.0 of their vision or if this is the vision.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. They, uh, you know, they claim that their ability to guarantee that rent and pay the difference helps them stand out from others in the space. Yeah. So I, you know, I don't, they are different from the likes of Zeus because they're not like fixing up the properties and staging them or, or that sort of thing. But this is a huge market, right? There's so many people who have rental properties. So A, there's probably room for several players, but B, you know, the fact that they're able to To guarantee is super appealing, I can imagine, to landlords to be like, okay, if I sign this, I know I'm going to get this much in rent. I can see where they would be more likely to win over customers than maybe another company. So, yeah, I mean, speaking of taking risks, we've had a lot of news, of course, in this new year related to FTX and SBF and all the other acronyms along with that (laughs) whole saga, right? It just never ends. And I think so far this year, we've got SBF pleading not guilty and you know, what we all think about that we've covered. So I don't know, Natasha, what what has happened? We haven't recorded in about a month. What happened since we last recorded? I know. I I definitely
0: want to start in like December 12th, because I do think if you were lucky enough, like myself to take PTO for the last two weeks of December, you stopped (laughs) hearing these names. But on December 12th, SPF was officially arrested by authorities. He was extradited to the U.S. and they charged him with defrauding investors. Then kind of a week later, the former Alameda CEO, Caroline Ellison, and FTX co-founder Gary Wang did plead guilty to multiple charges and accepted plea agreements that offered reduced sentencing for you know exchange with assistance in ongoing investigations. Then December 22nd, just days before Christmas, SPF was released on a $250 million bond uh, around 10 was collateral. And I think our, our latest is probably that SBF, like you said, Marianne, has pled not guilty and upon kind of a lawyer's request was granted to keep the people who paid SBF bail secret. So his trial now is set for October 2nd, 2023, which is the day before my birthday. So I feel like that's um kind of an interesting <laughs> timeline. Um, could face up to 115 years in jail if convicted on all charges. I That's the timeline. Becca, I would love to hear how you're processing this, because similar to Marianne and I, you're not a full-time crypto reporter. And we're kind of just, you know, through Tech Project, through being in tech, reading and processing all of this.
2: No, definitely not a crypto expert. Also, not a legal expert. (laughs) But I know, seeing that he pled not guilty, there were so many... Pieces like, oh, my God, I can't believe he did that. Like, there's so much evidence. There's so much this and that. And the first thing it made me think of, which I'm sure probably no one else, is Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, which I am a devoted viewer of. (laughs) But the reason I made that connection is because one of the main women on the show, Jen Shaw, has had sort of a similar situation, legal troubles. And I think SBF may actually end up taking the same path that she did. Okay, say more. So she got arrested... In March 2021, and was charged with conspiracy to commit wire fraud and conspiracy to commit money laundering for a company she'd been running for quite a while that essentially sold people's information to scams. Okay. And so she, there's some elder fraud, most likely in here, and it was pretty messy. And she got arrested while they were filming, which is like the best moment of reality TV of 2021. (laughs) But she pleaded not guilty, and... The person who was arrested, her, like, main guy, Stuart Smith, also pleaded not guilty. Okay. And it was like, okay, that's interesting. But then, as time went on, more and more people started saying, like, yes, no, this did happen. Then her right-hand man, Stuart Smith, changed his plea to guilty in November of 2021, and then the next season of the show was filmed, and she just laid so hard into being innocent. It yeah. was honestly kind of hard to watch. Her little tagline was even like, the only thing I'm guilty of is being amazing." No
0: way. Oh my God. And it's like, you are kidding me. I feel like SBF, when he was sitting on the deal book uh, stage, and saying, you know, my lawyers aren't telling me to do this. Like, it's a it, right. totally similarity. It's like kind of this like... I mean, she seems to be a little bit less coy and a little bit more
2: in your face about it. But it is this playbook, I guess, of people who who are in trouble legally. Mm-hmm. But then by the time like push came to shove and she went to trial, she quite quickly changed to guilty, which ended up dropping one of the charges against her. And she hasn't been sentenced yet. But I think once you actually face the music, you think about things a little more clearer than you are now. I mean, that trial's in 10 months. I have a feeling he'll either change his plea between now and then, or once he gets there and realizes the full gravity of this, I don't think he'll be not guilty for long.
1: Well, yeah. And also there's uh, in the article that Jacqueline wrote about it, one expert was saying that maybe he's just kind of buying time so he can plea bargain, you know, use this t- mm-hmm. time to sort of negotiate. It's interesting to me, though, in the case of of SBF and your real housewife uh, analogy <laughs> is that the people who, who are accused of these things obviously are quite arrogant to begin with if they're doing these things and thinking they're not going to get caught. So it's not shocking that they initially plead not guilty because they're they're still and sometimes you wonder in their mind if they really like don't think they're they're guilty. Like they totally. can justify all this awful stuff that they Have done. I don't know. But I know that we're all going to be like on the edge of our seats come trial time. And, you know, he could face up to 115 years in jail if he's convicted on all charges, which is insane. So I I don't know. We'll just have to see what happens there.
0: It's so funny because, like, I feel like this depends so much also on, like, human interest and fatigue. Like, yes, the law is a thing. But in Jackie's story where she wrote about this choice for him to not do a not guilty plea, she quoted someone who said that you know, it'll take years. My guess is at least a decade to unwind FTX, find the assets, if any, provide a recovery, if any, for creditors, and then establish who are the investors, what do they lose, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which made me just think a little bit about, yeah, like this buying time thing. And- anyone's been watching the news, let's say SPF is watching the news and watching some of the other high profile meltdowns that are happening in crypto right now. I just yeah, I do wonder if it's just like if we need someone else to get in trouble for SPF to get in trouble. I mean, is that the way our world works? Like that's so upsetting for it yeah. to be the way the world works, if that's the case.
1: I do think it's interesting that he his lawyers requested that his bail guarantor's names would not be released because security concerns, totally. like, apparently, like his own parents are getting threats and things like that. And I think that's just a testament to how what he's done has struck a nerve, uh, even to people who are not crypto investors, who don't even know necessarily know that much about crypto, but just this notion of like, defrauding so many people so blatantly. And then we also have Celsius in a similar situation right now that the CEO, former CEO and founder, Alex Mashinsky, I think is his name, also is is now being uh, accused by the New York Attorney General of major, major fraud and, and things like that. So like, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I hate to say it's just it's unfortunate for crypto because these bad apples are sort of giving it a bad name. But this is this SPF saga has really captured like global attention. And so I think a lot of people are still going to be paying attention for some time. Mm-hmm. Timing is, is so important
0: here. And I know we talked about kind of the energy we're heading into the new year with, which makes our final theme, I think, even more frustrating and uh, repetitive, which is Marianne, layoffs are continuing to happen in Q1 of 2023. As everyone predicted, what is the latest that we're hearing?
1: Yeah. And Rebecca called it right on Slack. She was like, we're going to probably be seeing a lot more layoffs in Q1 because so many companies were were trying to avoid doing these layoffs right before the holidays, except for Plaid. But anyway, so already here we are in the first week of January, we've got Salesforce cutting about 10% of their staff, which is 7,000 employees. And that's a lot. I think they'd cut just a few hundred or several hundred recently. Yeah, Vimeo, 11% of its staff. And I think it's of course a much smaller number, but still 11%. Stitch Fix, Amazon announced an additional 8,000. So we've got a lot of layoffs already being announced and it's very early into the new year.
0: Totally. Like I think the carnage is going to continue even when we're seeing with like executive roles. I don't know. I I think for in some ways it was easier to be like the layoff wave of 2022, but it doesn't feel like a wave anymore. It just feels like the reality. And I don't think there's going to be any like... Cute time hook that it's gonna be reserved to. You. But Manish from our team covered this week that the Indian FinTech Bharatpe CEO, Suhail Samir, is leaving his top job and another Zomato co-founder is leaving the firm. So yes, layoffs, yes, executive shuffles. It all is, you know, super disheartening too. And it makes me think a lot about like investors' role in this current moment because I, I can't tell you how many times I've spoken to people who are saying, because a funding round fell through, because you know, they pressured us for this, this, and this. So I am wondering if we're going to see investors start to finally also express some of their own mistakes this year more so.
1: We got a hint at it last year. That's really interesting Natasha. I hadn't thought about that cuz you know 2022 and now even 2023 with Salesforce the CEOs are all like taking responsibility. That's yeah. been like that new trend. Oh, it's my fault we overhired. We shouldn't have. But yeah, What about investor pressure, especially in the startup world? Right. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way.
2: Becca, what about investor pressure? No, I always think it is really interesting. A lot of those conversations are like, well, the startup overraised. And it's like, well, who gave them the capital? Who made them that deal? Who knew they were giving them an 100x times revenue valuation? VCs did. Thank you. And obviously, in some way, they assume that the company will meet that at some point or exit beforehand and not care, which I think is a lot of the conversation we don't generally talk about. But Come on. It's a market cycle. I mean, everyone had been talking about there would be a recession at some point starting in like 2017. And then last year, 2020, everyone was just like, just kidding. But it's like, come on, you know that this was coming eventually. They definitely play a role in this. And it would, I think you're right, it would be nice to see some, at least a little bit of acknowledgement in hey, maybe we're going to do smaller check sizes this time. Hey, maybe we're rethinking valuations in this way because there is a real human toll with these things.
1: And speaking of that, Natasha did a brilliant analysis where she talked to several laid off workers who shared their personal stories of what what they've been trying to do as they've reeled from being laid off. In some cases, not just once, but twice.
0: Oh my God. Yeah, it was actually like unintentional to find people who had been laid off twice, if not three times, one of my people I interviewed for this story because the reason for it that, you know, I wrote about how, tech workers are rethinking risk because it is so innate to startups that there's this weird argument that appears where it's like, you signed up for this. You signed up to join a scrappy company that wasn't yet public and gave up stability in return for a hopeful upside. At the same time, I feel like we were missing some of the reality that happens when someone in tech is laid off once, twice, even three times. Does it change the way they think about tech? Does it stop them from wanting to be in this job? And I, I think there was one story that in my piece that really stood out to me. And it just... Showed how much like this whiplash exists. And we'll call this person Mary. They were fired from an HR tech company, but just a few, you know, not long before that, she was given an award that recognized her contributions from the team. And the trophy was still being engraved with her name when she got the call just weeks later that her job had been terminated due to the macroeconomic climate. It was actually the second time her company had laid her off, the first time they asked her back in a few months. And then she went back and got lit off a third time at a new company. And it it had just been the first job where she earned a six-figure salary since joining Mm -hmm. the tech world. and. I say the story because I think that there's this like, again, another weird argument that like everyone in tech is super wealthy is, is is making six figures, if not a lot more. But I think that definitely just explains like the one stripe engineer and their story versus like all the other roles that get even more impacted by layoffs. And I just feel like that's something I want to talk about more this year in general is like,
2: what's like the human long term impact of all of this? I was just going to add, that's something I was going to bring up is I think the piece does a really good job of reminding people that not every tech worker is also an angel investor also has this huge bank account also like oh you got laid off whatever take six months off and figure out what you want to do yeah. I feel like there's been so much rhetoric about that on twitter of people being like oh boohoo people are getting laid off from twitter like go cry into your trust fund and then like look for a new job in three months Ugh. but That's just not the reality for so many people who work at these companies. They make a whole different range of salaries. Also, even if you make a higher salary, they don't know what you have going on cost-wise. Exactly. you take care of a parent, maybe you have kids. It's like, it's so, I feel like it was good to sort of point that out because you're right that we just don't talk about that side of it much. That there's just such this weird conversation that like, oh, well, people are getting laid off in tech. It's like they knew what they were getting into and they have all this money. And it's just like, that's just not... True.
0: Thank you for saying that. I, it's like the same narrative that I think assumes that everyone who works in tech is free for a 530 to 930 happy hour every night. And like, that's how they're going to get career mobility. Like that is not how uh, real life works. I think people have like different circumstances, like you said, Becca. The, the only other thing that I think I'm, I'm still thinking about, and Marianne, I'm super curious what you think about this, this idea of like being overemployed. One person I spoke to is working two full-time jobs, but they're both remote. And for this person, I'll read the quote. She said, as a black woman, sometimes I feel slighted by being overlooked and not feeling like anyone thinks I'm capable of doing more. So you may not have thought that I was capable of doing a lot more, but I actually do. You don't know what's in my bank account. And being overemployed has kind of been her response to being underestimated by her employer's historically. Yeah.
1: Well, for, first of all, I was kind of just saddened that she felt that way because she probably had had a good reason to, unfortunately. But also I was just astounded that she's been able to manage having two full-time jobs, neither employer knows that she's working the other job, and she has a consulting business on the side but you know she's looking out for herself and she's been burned so she's like hey if i get laid off from one job at least i have another one um or at least i have my side business so she's really just trying to to cover all her bases and um it's unfortunate that she's feels like she's in a position that she needs to do that but uh good for her though at least she's you know she's really hustling
0: yeah exactly I feel like hustling and and just hopefully uh you know if, if you're listening to the pod and you have a story like this or different or disagree with my piece and think that I missed a whole angle please do reach out um but I think that's all we have for this first week back to normal recording um I missed you both so much and I am excited um is there anything else that either of you wanted to add before we sign off
1: not just happy to be back
0: Heck yeah. All right. Well, you can follow us on Twitter at EquityPod. Use code Equity for TechCrunch Plus. And Alex, if you are listening, I'm not going to tell you not to listen because like, you know, I'll take it. We miss you and I appreciate the listen. (laughs) Everyone else, we will chat again on Monday. Bye. Equity Fridays are hosted by myself, TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Natasha Mascarenas, TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Becca Skutak, and TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Marianne Azevedo. We're produced by Teresa Locansolo, with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Picovet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week.